We're grateful for everyone who supports us. Thanks to all our sponsors. This is an ICRT podcast. Enjoy the show. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing a US Senate committee passing the Taiwan Policy Act and the European Parliament passing a non-binding pro-Taiwan resolution, some local election news from both ends of the island, the KMT defending the 1992 consensus, a survey showing that support for the death penalty here in Taiwan remains rather high, and the death of Britain's Queen Elizabeth, making news here like it's done everywhere, and also resulting in some Twitter photo moments for some government officials. But we'll begin with it being United Nations General Assembly time once again, and the government is once again taking steps to make the island's voice heard in New York. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs says it's calling on Taiwan's diplomatic allies and like-minded countries to voice their support for the island's inclusion in the UN system. Now, Foreign Ministry Secretary General Lily Xu says her office is asking friendly nations to speak up during the upcoming General Assembly and also to send a letter to the Secretary General. The Foreign Ministry has also released details of its campaign for UN participation this year and the main appeals there are to demand an end to the exclusion of Taiwan's 23 million people from the UN system and to allow Taiwan to jointly work with countries around the world in facing global challenges. Now a delegation of lawmakers will be visiting New York to advocate for Taiwan's UN representation and the island's representative office in the Big Apple will also be holding a series of events promoting inclusion in the UN system. Now it may all sound the same as before but local politicos and pundits alike have been saying that Beijing's recent actions against Taiwan have well uh, of course they've made the global headlines of course and the people here are saying that may help the island garner a wee bit more support for its calls in New York this year. So Brian there we go it's usual but of course Beijing's been getting up to no good and that could sway people's opinions. Yeah I think that's really to be seen because this kind of campaigning does happen year after year and this is as you mentioned one of these recurring news stories that we see continuously. Um, the question now is there is much more scrutiny on Taiwan, but I think uh, with these shows of support for Taiwan by U.S. elected officials, most probably uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, those led to reprisals from China. And so I actually do wonder if there will be hesitation as to expressions of support for Taiwan. I think what's also interesting is to note that compared to past years when the U.S. really uh, did push for Taiwan regarding U.N. bodies uh, and pushing for observer status and that sort of thing, that took place under the Trump administration with the Biden administration having really differentiated itself by taking a much more low-key approach in some ways uh, in terms of, for example, trying to avoid what would lead to reactions from China, except for with the Pelosi visit, which I couldn't really control in that respect. And so I actually do wonder if, if, by contrast, it could perhaps be a little more muted in some respects than usual. Yeah, actually, I have to agree. Um, I uh, don't want to be a pessimist, but uh, Beijing's belligerence or not, uh, I don't think we're going to uh, see any significant change. Now, I do think that we should continue to do this uh, on an annual basis or as much as possible because it does raise the profile of Taiwan, and uh, there's no harm in doing so. But uh, the one China policy that the United States has is sort of more like, uh, yeah, we acknowledge that you feel that way about Taiwan, 
But much of the rest of the world has a, a stronger one China. Taiwan is a part of China policy. And I've actually, personally at least, I feel that that has increased in many countries. You get online these days and say, I want to buy a, a, a song for my DJ set or I want to get uh, banking done in certain places. I don't have an option rather than to click the Taiwan province of China uh, thing. And that's just an example of how they've managed to worm their way into the, the systems of, of, of many, many countries. So, uh, yes, we should do it. Uh, but I also have concerns, as Brian mentioned, that uh, there was uh, repercussions and that could uh, mute the enthusiasm of certain countries. I do expect a couple of our, our island nation allies to once again stand up and make some, some comments. But uh, we should do it, but not uh, expect uh, any miracles. And what about China's reaction in New York, Brian? Uh, that's right, yeah. And so that's another question. I mean, for example, we definitely expect some reaction from China condemning Taiwan uh, and stressing as though there is the same policy between, let's say, the one China principle that China has versus the U.S. one China policy. I also think it's important to note that countries have different one China policies, not as though there's one unitary one China policy across the world. Each country has their own different one. But then often Beijing will frame it as though this is some kind of international law, citing, for example, the U.N. regulations in the past and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I think what's going to be interesting is, as usual, observing the countries that do speak up for Taiwan among the diplomatic allies, because people are always gauging at a time in which Beijing is trying to purge, uh, to poach diplomatic allies of Taiwan's, which ones will stay with Taiwan, which ones will switch recognition to China. At the same time, it's also a question if there'll be any left field surprises in terms of countries that previously have not really spoken out, but might use this as a platform to speak up in support of Taiwan or against. I mean, that's also another form of signaling if you want to signal alignment to Beijing. So I think that's, that's something that might happen. Uh, those curveballs are, are less uh, able to be anticipated ahead of time. But I don't think it'll be a major shift necessarily. Yeah, I think that's pretty much all we can say on this. Um, it would be, of course, uh, very interesting if a country such as Lithuania or the Ukraine or something were to to somehow uh, suddenly voice some support. But it's, uh, in my view, highly unlikely. Because, of course, Lithuania, of course, and Taiwan are developing ties. Brian, of course, is a trade office or a representative office opening in Taipei. That's right. And so it's interesting because this predates the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but there is the stronger support for Taiwan by Eastern European countries. And a lot of that does actually seem to be motivated by the fact that these are countries that also depend on the U.S. for security uh, and, and against the threat of Russia. And so signaling support for Taiwan was in some way signaling alignment with Western countries, with the U.S., and so forth. And so it's also to be seen if that, for example, this would provide a opportunity or a window for them to express support for Taiwan in some way. Moving on now, but only slightly. The presidential office on Thursday expressed its thanks to the US Senate Committee on Foreign Relations for voting to approve the Taiwan Policy Act. Now the bill aims to increase America's support for Taiwan, both militarily and economically, and it was introduced in June by Senators Bob Menendez and Lindsey Graham. Now both of those senators are describing it as the most comprehensive reorganisation of US policy toward Taiwan after the Taiwan Relations Act. Now the committee, though, removed or made non-binding some of the original proposals in the bill and that included proposals to rename Taiwan's representative office in Washington DC, require Senate approval for the appointment of envoys to Taiwan and also to designate Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally. However, it, the updated bill still included provisions for up to six and a half billion US dollars in grants from next year through 2027 for Taiwan to purchase weapons systems from America. Now the presidential office says the bill will help facilitate security cooperation between the two sides 
deepen bilateral economic and trade interactions and promote Taiwan's international participation. The bill, though, still needs to pass the US Senate in full and the US House of Representatives and also be signed into law by President Joe Biden by January the 3rd of next year. Meanwhile, Taiwan's top envoy to the United States this week met with dozens of international lawmakers who support sanctioning China over its military pressure against the island. Now, Xiaobi Kim hosted a gathering of some 60 parliamentarians from Europe, Asia and Africa at the Twin Oaks Estate in Washington, D.C. The group consisted of members of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, which just happened to be holding its annual meeting in Washington this week. Now, news of that meeting came amid reports that Washington is considering sanctions against China to deter it from invading Taiwan. Now, the European Union is also coming under pressure to take much the same action. And members of the European Parliament on Thursday of this week passed a non-binding pro-Taiwan resolution in which they denounced China's live-fire exercises in the Taiwan Strait and demanded that the Chinese government refrain from any measures which could destabilise both the Taiwan Strait and the region. It also called on member states who do not have a trade office in Taiwan to strengthen their relations with the island. So, Michael, we've got the Europeans and the Americans passing resolutions about Taiwan there in the same week. Yeah, I don't think any uh, person in Taiwan, pretty much regardless of their political affiliation, would feel that there's uh, something wrong with this. It's uh, great to have support from the United States, and the the weapons are uh, a welcome addition to defensive capabilities of Taiwan. I am a little bit uh, disappointed that the sort of softer power uh, proposals uh, that were put in there were not made necessarily or will not necessarily be made into law, because in my view, some of those might actually be uh, maybe not as effective as a weapon, but uh, certainly an effective weapon. And what I mean by that is changing the, the name of uh, a U.S. Uh, Taiwan embassy, rather, or designating it as a non-major uh, NATO ally. Things like this would go a long way towards reframing and renormalizing the conversation that we have on Taiwan. Imagine if the U.S., the EU, and, say, Japan just changed their policy and decided to go ahead and allow the flag to fly and uh, allow the office to use the... China, at some point, if, if enough of the world is doing this, they're outnumbered. So I'm under no illusion. You know, China is the world's second largest economy, and it's very intertwined with the U.S. economy. It's very difficult for many countries to uh, do certain things like Lithuania did because the reaction would be very strong. So I'm happy to see companies in Taiwan like Foxconn and several others looking towards India because I'm hoping that perhaps uh, over a decade or plus, that we could, uh, much of the world might be able to move and shift away from China as a manufacturing hub and sort of isolate it in a bubble. If the entire world is calling Taiwan, Taiwan, and perhaps not necessarily calling it a, a independent country, but saying it's a, a sovereign, um, a diplomatically run island or whatever term they want to use, uh, when, when there gets to be a certain threshold, um, what, what's China going to do about it? Yeah, and so, of course, the uh, bill does come on the heels of a number of U.S. elected lawmakers visiting Taiwan, which was unprecedented. This took place in the wake of the Pelosi visit, which was, of course, the most high-profile of these, uh, and as well as some state governors touting particularly business ties between Taiwan and their home states. Uh, so I think what is interesting, though, is that there has been a kind of split that has emerged, particularly around the Pelosi visit and afterwards, between the executive branch of government, the Biden administration, and elected representatives of the government from the legislature. Uh, particularly, there has been a debate going on for quite a while between 
seen, for example, the benefits and disadvantages of strategic ambiguity versus clarity with Biden's flip-flops on Taiwan and what the U.S. stance on Taiwan is leading to some confusion, some ambiguity about ambiguity, let's say. Uh, but then at the same time now, particularly with the uh, visits and with this uh, legislation, there's also a debate about the use of symbolic measures and substantive ones, which are preferable and which ones lead to more benefits for Taiwan and which other ones are just going to lead to Chinese reprisals but are not necessarily worth it. And so this is another split that has developed regarding that in the wake of the uh, ambiguity versus clarity debate, in which many the voices that sided more with the preserving of strategic ambiguity, or at least not throwing it out immediately, uh, have more tended towards seeing these symbolic measures as dangerous. Uh, Brian, so- would you agree that uh, perhaps much of the world, or some of the world at least, saw the reaction that China took to the Pelosi visit and sort of uh, were, were underwhelmed? Um, it depends. I mean, I actually think that it depends on which country and where, but I think there's quite a lot of uh, sensationalism in international headlines, in which there's not the perception of viewpoints on Taiwan, in which things are relatively chill. I mean, there's much discourse around the world as though things were on the verge of World War III. And this is actually going to happen again after the legislation patches or doesn't pass or however it resolves. There will be another round of hand-wringing regarding this. I think that's definitely going to happen. I also do think that China will be obligated to reprise, uh, to come, conduct some form of reprisal, uh, which perhaps will they will attempt to escalate more than the policy visit, taking this as a new provocation, because China is looking for ways to escalate. Um, I think that, that's another possibility then. I think also the timing of when this resolves, when this bill resolves in some form, is also a question then, because that's when China will decide to take actions. And of course, Michael, the head of the Taiwan's representative office in America meeting with international lawmakers this week to call for the countries to basically put sanctions on China to pressure it not to up the ante when it comes to causing trouble across the Taiwan Strait. Yeah, this sort of goes to the the strategic ambiguity uh, thing that Brian was discussing earlier. If these sanctions were to be, uh, they, they might not even need to be put in place, but if they were spelled out as to what would happen if you were to do X, this could be quite helpful because it would help uh, Emperor Xi Jinping decide uh, whether or not such a provocation is worth risking um, his, his throne. So putting these out there and saying very clearly what we would do in the case of a sort of a, a, a Ukraine attempt on Taiwan could be very helpful. And of course, Brian, these countries, these are parliamentarians. They can only take it back to their governments. Yeah, I think it's a question. I mean, economic sanctions, uh, it's interesting timing, particularly with C, for example, still maintaining COVID zero. I think trying to transition China's economy away from ties with the international world in some ways, almost yearning after the enclosed period of China's economy in the past. Uh, but then I think also, particularly, there might be splits between Western powers regarding sanctions. Uh, the U.S. and the EU, for example, might diverge paths. Western European countries particularly have been much more reluctant to go with U.S. attempts to pressure China regarding trade or on tech. Uh, for example, just not being as concerned regarding Chinese technology as used in vital infrastructure, such as 5G. Whereas, by contrast, Eastern Europe has been more uh, willing to build ties with Taiwan, I think oftentimes because of a lack of as strong economic relations with China as compared to Western Europe. And so I think also particularly the way the U.S. and the EU behave um, will be interesting to observe if there are divergences, if there are sanctions. And of course, Michael, some, like Brian was saying, some Western European countries do rely heavily on China. 
Very much so, yeah, which is why uh, I couldn't get too excited about Lithuania after you go and look at the trade figures of how much is imported and exported between China and that country. You can see that they sort of have uh, some breathing room for being so brave, not that you know I'm trying to take away from what they did, but it's, it's, it's great. But yes, very, very much so. There are some countries that, that uh, have a, a much deeper relationship, and America would be at the top of that list, however. So... Uh, in addition to Brian's um, comments about the, the Western European countries and, and Eastern Europe, another possible reason for why there's more support for Taiwan from those countries could be because uh, they were once strangled by the Soviet Union, and they sort of have a bit of an understanding of what it's like to be under the heel of a authoritarian power. So maybe that's a, a, an element as well. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, it's very easy to, for example, see parallels between uh, the relation between Eastern European countries and Russia or the former Soviet Union and Taiwan and China. So I think that there's definitely that sense of parallel there. Whereas by contrast, I think then that raises the question about uh, Western pow European powers and their investment in the Asia Pacific, because some are able to project military power into the Asia Pacific. But what stance they want to take regarding this, that's a, that's a question. And moving away from international relations now and bringing it back home where we'll have a look at some of the latest local election news. Now the DPP's Joel Chun Mi is ramming up her campaign in Pingdong County to become the commissioner of there while in Taipei the KMT's Zheng Wen and an independent mayoral candidate Vivian Huang made headlines this week after going after the DPP's Taipei mayoral candidate hopeful Chen Shijong with allegations that he failed to properly protect Taiwan against the coronavirus when he was the minister of Health. Now, both the United Daily News and the China Times opted to cover their front pages with large print headlines covering Zhang and Huang's charges against the former health minister. Those charges included allegations that Chen is responsible for over 10,000 coronavirus-related deaths, that he made a mess of vaccine procurement, and that he put his political beliefs before the well-being of the people, all of which resulted in Chen politely dismissing the allegations and simply saying, do you think I'm mad? So, Brian, Let's start in Taipei, just because we can. And these allegations that they're blaming Chen, who wants to be mayor, for the coronavirus state. Is yeah, this... it's not too surprising. I think this is a line of attack that the Pam Blue camp would be expected to take, uh, particularly for the DPP. And I think part of the reason why there's such ambiguity about whether it would be running him, uh, whether running Chen Zhejiang in Taipei was advisable, is because his public perception is very deeply linked to public perceptions of Taiwan's performance regarding COVID-19. And so my own sense is that the view from the DPP for a while was, well, we don't know what the COVID situation will look like then during elections. And if things turn south, people will be blaming Chen still. And so that will affect the chances. Uh, and so these are not new lines of attack from the KMT or the, the TPP. Uh, they have gone after Chen on a number of issues, including, for example, claiming that he should be replaced as Minister of Health when the COVID situation was under control because of the fact that his measures had hurt the economy too much. And so they have grabbed onto what they can to attack him. But uh, regarding COVID, I think that particularly there are still some that are unhappy with the transition away from COVID zero and viewing it as a mistake to allow for any kind of transition away from that to have cases, try to accommodate yourself to COVID-19. And so I think that will be the line of attack still used by the KMT. But then the public might find that a bit offensive, Michael. That um, yeah, I'm, I'm watching the Taipei one. Uh, it doesn't seem that these blows are, are, are landing very hard. I don't know if uh, Brian agrees with me, but I also, from, from the South, as I watch the campaign of uh, the KMT candidate, uh, I sort of feel, again, underwhelmed by his performance. He uh, just 
I was expecting um, a better performance, just put it that way. And of course, I think you made a point there, Brian. We, many people were expecting greater things from Jung Wen Han. <laughs> yeah, I think so, actually. I mean, there's a lot of commentary on this as well, that Jung has been unusually quiet. Uh, it's actually kind of strange because the fact is that as a legislator, he was able to garner headlines and he was one of the KMT legislators as much more in the news. And so that does make a logical choice to run him when this idea had been floated for some time. But he has not actually managed to capture headlines always in the same way. Uh, the Chen campaign is quite interesting because it is often somewhat reminiscent of Koenja's uh, campaign in, in 2014, actually, having an older candidate with a medical background going and doing things that young people enjoy and, and things like that. Uh, it's a bit awkward sometimes on the part of Chen in terms of campaigning. But then, on the other hand, Jiang, as a much younger candidate, uh, particularly for the KMT, a party that struggles to field younger candidates, he's not actually really able to uh, leverage on that image as much. He's not even really leaned into that either. Mm. And he's just kind of oddly non-present for, for a lot of uh, just grabbing news headlines or media coverage. And, and then at one point he had said something to the effect of that uh, when he announced his candidacy or something that he would boldly uh, address the issue of his uh, heritage. Uh, I guess he was referring specifically to uh, Chiang Kai-shek and, and, and all of that. But then when the actual comments on that came out, it was, again, to use the word, underwhelming and uh, a sort of missed opportunity because if he had framed us the right way, it could have possibly been sort of a breakthrough moment for a a new, younger version of the KMT. And what about Vivian Huang, Brian? I mean, do you think many voters believe that she will simply carry on with Ko and Jer's way of running the show? It's a good question, actually, because Ko has sometimes seemed threatened by other politicians within his party. I think a lot of his part, uh, the politicians that are in his party and hold office, they are not people that are just loyal to Ko. They are people that are from Pan Blue political backgrounds, mostly, and have their own political ambitions. And so that meant aligning with Ko. And that's true of Vivian Huang as well. And so I think particularly a question now is as Ko vacates political office and doesn't hold a political office, can he maintain his hold on the TPP? Or will the politicians that actually do hold office in the TPP challenge him? And so right now, though, Vivian Huang is the TPP candidate, despite not actually being in the party, which is another source of controversy sometimes within the party, with a view that she's using party resources, but not of the party. Uh, for example, they might clash in the future. And I think that, that sometimes does happen. Ko is a way of clashing against and attacking political allies. And of course, Michael, in the south, in Pingdong, it's heating up there. Well, yes, heating up in a, in a, in a sense. So the yeah, outgoing yeah. magistrate, Po Meng An, he uh, was rated, uh, I think, several years in a row as a, um, either at the top or very close to the top of uh, best-performing magistrates. And um, I actually expect that uh, he will go on to perhaps national politics at some point. Uh, many people don't know this person currently in Taiwan, but uh, I think they will come to know him relatively soon. And what he's done for Ping Dong was mainly um, add some infrastructure things, not just bridges and stuff like that, but uh, he made the libraries, uh, city of exercise centers and stuff like this, more of a, a living things. But he has not been able to address the fundamental flaws that Pingdong has, which is uh, uh, more people are dying than are either being born or moving to Pingdong. And it's not attracting investment money in the same way as, say, Kaohsiung is. Recently, Kaohsiung has been on a, a bit of a roll with uh, investment uh, attraction. So, um, so she was actually not 
necessarily the favorite among the three candidates that the DPP originally had running for uh, this position, but she got the nod from Pong. So she is now ramping up her campaign, and the challengers that she have, uh, it's probably fair to say they don't stand a chance of winning in uh, deeply green Pingdong. The city of Pingdong is slightly different. It's mostly been run by the KMT for the past uh, 15 years or so, but we're talking about the county magistrate here. So she is proposing many things that would try to address those fundamental issues that Pingdong faces. And if things continue the way they are, uh, Pingdong could lose seats in the legislature and just in general fall into uh, greater disarray. And um, it, it, it's currently there's, there's really no positive exit strategy. So things that she's proposing, we've heard before. It's uh, subsidies, uh, other things like this. But uh, she seems very enthusiastic about this, and she has the strong backing of the outgoing uh, magistrate. So we'll have to see if she maybe is successful. Yeah, I think this is a challenge faced by basically candidates of any political stripe currently, because there's this demographic trap that is looming in Taiwan, and everyone knows this is going to happen. But what policies are needed to deal with that? That's a question. And also, I don't think that any candidate of any party has really come up with a compelling narrative of how to address Taiwan's aging population, Agreed. declining birth rate, and so forth. Um, I think Ping Dong, it's another case in which, for example, a, a popular DPP politician is now facing the question of succession. This also occurred in Taorin with Zheng Wenzhen, and attempting to pass it on to the but then there's the plagiarism scandal. And that might not occur in Pingdong, though, in the sense that that transition does seem to be going much more smoothly. And so I think it's kind of to be seen whether that will then progress. And of course, in Kaohsiung, Michael, all eyes are on City Hall rather than who's going to be mayor. Yes, I uh, I have a, an interview uh, tentatively scheduled for ICRT with the uh, the KMT candidate uh, who who's running. She is a professor and uh, seems relatively non-controversial. She hasn't made a lot of comments about what she would do differently or how she would run the city. So as of now, if you were to look at a poll for uh, who's going to win the mayoral competition, uh, Chen Shi Mai is, is pretty much a shoe-in. But yeah, on the city council uh, side, it's interesting that such a green city like Kaohsiung would have uh, the city council have a majority of KMT members uh, for, mm, I'm thinking, at least a couple of decades now. So what's interesting about these KMT members is that their allegiance is very much more uh, to the local level than to the uh, central party. They might be bearing the KMT banner, but in essence, they are uh, their loyalty is to Kaohsiung, and that comes out clearly when they speak and when they vote and uh, and just in general in their performance. This is a phenomenon we see in southern Taiwan. I don't know uh, how how much it is in, in in other cities, but even the blue people down here, it's more of uh, their blue slash Kaohsiung people. Yeah, I think uh, it's quite interesting because the KMT has long had dominance over the city council or county councilor level. And so for actually, particularly uh, in light blue areas, when younger candidates were able to make breakthroughs in the past, that was considered unprecedented. Uh, even just with the wave of successes in the legislative level after, for example, 2016, people were surprised that there was breakthroughs at the uh, city councilor and county councilor level because just the KMT is just seen as so entrenched at that level. Um, I think it's interesting, too, because the KMT is hoping to make inroads into southern Taiwan in past years, particularly hoping to replicate Hangor's spectacular performance, uh, taking what is traditionally seen as Pangreen's stronghold and then maintaining that. While the DPP actually also is aiming similarly, for example, with regards to Taorin or Zilong or the places that have historically been very pan-blue, trying to maintain that or make inroads into that. 
Uh, so the KMT actually does have hopes directly on Kaohsiung in terms of replicating that in the past, but it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of attention there this time around. Uh, other times, I do think the Pam Lukamp fields candidates in the South that have no chance of winning just to kind of see how they perform or test them or to groom them uh, for future runs or positions in the party. So there's a possibility that this could be that. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and the KMT has been busy defending the 1992 consensus, now defence of the tactic understanding between the KMT and Beijing, that both sides of the Taiwan Strait acknowledge there is one China, with each side having its own interpretation of what China means, comes after KMT chairman Eric Ju didn't quite handle a recent interview with German media outlet Deutsche Welle very well, and after China's state media chose to state there is only one interpretation of China. Now, the KMT's core Whip William Zhang has been accusing the Renmin Zhang Xiaobao of taking a phrase from the consensus out of context, and he's insisting that one China with different interpretations still exists for both sides, Brian. Yeah, so it's one of those things that during the interview, Eric Chu is very insistent that the KMT is the status quo party and then shrugged off questions about China changing the status quo. There's also just a bit of a puzzling interview in that he just didn't seem very well prepared. Uh, I would applaud him, for example, for doing it in English. A lot of KMT politicians, despite, or even pan DPP politicians, including Tsai in the past, have shrugged off English interviews despite being totally fluent in English because, I think, of the fact that they can have deniability through a translator about if things are said wrong. But in this case, uh, for example, Chu stumbled over some words. For example, when asked about what his policy would be, he just said, well, whatever the KMT did in the past, almost verbatim. He said, whatever. Um, and so it just didn't really play off well, and he didn't come off well. Chu seemed to be trying to make up for the fact that he had come under controversy for referring to the 19 consensus as a non-consensus consensus while in Washington. And he may be playing to multiple audiences, trying to please both DC and Beijing at once. But this time around, he went with leading into the status quo and, and just uh, the preserving the existing KMT policies. Yeah, I loved that line, uh, no consensus consensus, or however he put it, that just uh, is nonsensical. But I think anyone with uh, brains, including people in the KMT, are pretty much, uh, they understand that the 92 consensus, which is uh, pretty much a, a made-up uh, thing anyway, is dead. And, um, I mean, not that it really lived, but the, the nail in the coffin, uh, at least in my view, is definitely the actions that took place in Hong Kong. So uh, the party needs to somehow state what they stand for. I really wish that the KMT would take a position and stick with it. Something like, we are for better relations with China. We strive towards a day when the unification of Taiwan and China can be achieved under democratic principles. We uh, resist attempts to, for the PRC to bully. The 92 consensus may have been useful in the past, but uh, one country, two systems is obviously not going to work here. We earnestly look forward to a day when both sides are free and democratic. Just something that would be, you can take home, you know, some actual policy, but instead it's hemming and hawing constantly. So if they were to put out a statement like the one I just mentioned that at least had a, a couple of policy uh, things of what they believe in, it might cost them an election or two, but in the long run, at least this party would stand for something. Whereas currently they sort of stand for everything and nothing, which is uh, not a very attractive uh, platform. Yeah, I think it's one of the dilemmas faced with that KMT. What's interesting is that Johnny Chang, Eric Chu's predecessor chair, 
and Chu early on in his tenure as chair both sort of proposed distancing or even dropping the 1992 consensus, but then they rapidly swerved away from that idea. It does seem there are very strong internal pressures in the party not to deviate from the 1992 consensus, perhaps originating from Ma Ying-jeou, because this is his big policy achievement. Uh, and then he is still quite active in the KMT at present. Uh, the question then is that they cannot find any more winning formula. Recently, after the live fire drills uh, around Taiwan following the Pelosi visit, Andrew Xiao, the vice chair of the KMT, went to China and once again emphasized the 1990 consensus. And this would just take place after the non-consensus consensus comments by Chu. And so their messaging is not very clear at present. They couldn't really distance the notion of 1990 consensus from One China, Two Systems during the 2019 Hong Kong protests. And some actions by China have actually pushed them into odd statements. For example, when China was emphasizing claims over the Taiwan Straits as a territorial waters, they came to issue a statement saying that, well, Taiwan has never been part of the PRC. Uh, and that is that is already a very unusual statement from the KMT. And to see them pushed to saying that is quite unusual. But now it's back to 1990 consensus all of a sudden. And the Foundation for the People on Monday of this week released the results of its latest survey on the death penalty, which showed that 86.9% of respondents oppose the abolition of capital punishment in Taiwan, while a mere 12.4% are in favour of it being scrapped. Now, the survey was conducted shortly after the killing of two police officers in Tainan, and Foundation Chairman and KMT lawmaker Johnny Jung say the survey found that despite the government not abolishing capital punishment, 79.9% of respondents believe the Tsai administration has ceased carrying out executions. So, Michael, more people favouring the death sentence still? Yeah, uh, perhaps if the poll had been carried out at a time uh, a little bit more distant from the killing of the police officers, the numbers would have been slightly different, but not much. Uh, Poll after poll has shown a very strong support for the death penalty in Taiwan. The last execution, however, was carried out in 2020, and there's currently 38 people on death row. I think uh, only one of them is a woman. But um, so... Coenza uh, has announced his presidential bid. He has said, I think it was September 6th, that uh, he would enforce the death penalty if elected president. So I guess he's trying to be the law and order president. But the official policy of the last couple of administrations has been that they plan to phase out the death penalty. And they haven't set a date for its abolition. But um, as one of the few countries, so if you, if you look back on history and look at uh, countries who have admitted to wrongful executions, actually, surprisingly, China has uh, admitted to at least three and possibly as many as five, and these are somewhat recent, like uh, as recent as 2005. But uh, other countries, Ireland, the United States, uh, Australia, these are more historical cases where it's like 100 years ago or 70 years ago, and uh, the person has been uh, posthumously exonerated. But Taiwan's memory of the Zhang Guoqing case, a 21-year-old soldier who was executed by firing squad in 1997 after he was convicted of raping and murdering a little girl, he maintained his innocence to the very end. He refused to eat his last meal. And in the end, it was proven that he was not the killer, and his mother was awarded 130-plus million NT, uh, which was uh, the the largest compensation uh, for a mistrial, at least uh, at that point. So the, the issue with the death penalty is that we're still talking about what the public wants with this. 
But in my opinion, and in the opinion, I think, of uh, other uh, human rights organizations, there are some things that you don't put up for a vote or you don't put up for a referendum or you don't. It doesn't matter what public opinion is. Take the U.K., for example. They abolished the death penalty, I believe, in 1965. And at the time, most people there uh, were not in support of the government's actions. But now, if you were to poll Britons, you would probably find very, very few people who would want it back. So I'm, I'm disappointed in the fact that we keep asking the public about this, because this is something that just, in my view, needs to be done. And perhaps the Supreme Court should uh, rule that it's unconstitutional. But uh, we don't ask the public about uh, taxation or speed limits or other things like that. And uh, human rights, uh, be it for marriage equality to uh, whatever, we, it, they're just not up for debate. So I'm also disappointed in Buddhist groups who should be taking a larger role in helping convince the public of the uh, non-viability uh, and just the, the cruelty and, and nastiness of the death penalty. They seem to come out of the woodwork when the casino issue was there, and they put a, a very big uh, campaign on that, but they haven't. Uh, I haven't heard anything but mostly silence from them. And um, it's, it's one of these things that uh, Taiwan uh, just needs to move away from. And the fact that uh, we're still talking about the possibility of executing nonviolent offenders as well, because as Ko mentioned, uh, one of the things that he would have on that list would be executing drug traffickers, which actually hasn't happened in Taiwan for a very, very long time. But just even talking about executing nonviolent offenders to me is just uh, atrocious. And uh, we, we, we have an experience uh, in this 21-year-old soldier that should give us pause and make us think about this entire thing. And, and anyway, I, I feel a lot of disappointment because I interviewed the vice minister of justice under the Mindjoy administration, and she was uh, very clear even back then about the government's policy. Now, I will say uh, I have to give Taiwan credit for the way the death penalty is implemented here. That's uh, much kinder, I suppose you could say, than other countries like America's with their dead man walking and trying to find a vein and all of this. In Taiwan, it's generally now the uh, patient is. Uh, Rather, the convict is led to a building uh, after a last meal. They are allowed to pray, then they are sedated to the point of unconsciousness, and then put on a mattress and either shot in the heart or the head, depending on if they're going to be an organ donor or not. So compared to a lot of other places, firing squads, for example, Taiwan's method of execution uh, may be kinder. But we've got 38 people there, and the... Just, it's, it's not worth the, the fuss, and it's time that we just got this over with and abolish the death penalty. Yeah, so it's a long-standing issue that the death penalty is supported by the public. And so I actually find the most interesting finding from this survey is that the view that the Tsai administration has not used the death penalty, because it has. And this was then criticized at the time by anti-death penalty groups, anti-capital punishment groups. Uh, the Tsai administration seeking to politicize the issue because it had been criticized by the Pan Blue Camp of failing to maintain social order, allowing for violent incidents to current society because it was not carrying out capital punishment. And so then it was criticized as going for a case and executing a prisoner that had a similar profile to similar uh, to, to the violent incidents that happened then in society. And so that, I think, is also one of the concerns now of anti-capital punishments groups is that the Tide administration will be pushed in to use the death penalty again before elections as a way to store up support in order to try to lay this criticism. And I think it's also then possible that Pam Blue Cannons will jump onto the bandwagon and public express support for the death penalty because of the fact this is a way to attack Tsai, attack her for not maintaining social order. 
Uh, what's interesting is that there's this is contributed to by the media, for example, oftentimes playing up on instances of violent crime. Uh, oftentimes you'll have relatives, for example, making public statements and calling for the use of the death penalty. That happened this time with the sister of one of the police officers that was killed going to give a uh, press conference at the legislature the next day. Um, and then calls on. There's also calls on side to use the death penalty. Uh, there's also death threats directed at anti-capital punishment groups. Uh, what's interesting about the many cases of, uh, uh, in terms of capital punishment and wrongful execution or prisoners on death row is that a lot of the evidence is not actually present uh, because these are cases that go back to authoritarian times. And it seems like, for example, there's torture that was used, uh, evidence has gone missing, for example, dozens of recordings, uh, the confessions are not consistent, and so forth. But even now, there seems to be a reluctance to confront this past or even acknowledge wrongdoing on the part of the police decades later. And of course, Brian, the survey also found that 88.1% of respondents to the poll believe that capital punishment actually helps prevent serious crimes. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it just seems to be the prevalent belief, and this is how it often comes up in discourse, that by not using the death penalty, then you're not having a deterrent for violent crimes that when they take place. Unfortunately, however, uh, anyone who studied this uh, will uh, find that this, uh, there's just no evidence to support that. Um, perhaps uh, the, the high percentage of Taiwanese who supported, may, maybe this is a, a holdover from you know, Confucian Chinese values or something, but uh, there just is no evidence that the death penalty does anything to uh, uh, mitigate uh, especially violent crimes such as murder. Study after study has shown that basically murder boils down to two groups. There's crimes of passion and there's premeditated murder. And when it comes to crimes of passion, the person is not thinking and acts fast enough, uh, too fast rather, to, uh, to, to even consider the ramifications of their actions. Otherwise, if it's premeditated, they have considered the actions, uh, their consequences, and they've decided to do it anyway. So there needs to be more education to the public. When I speak with my Taiwanese friends uh, about this subject, I try to be as respectful as possible because I understand that they, they have strong feelings about this. But when I do give them these these studies and explain these these things to them, uh, very often um, people will say, well, you know, those are things I'd never considered before. So if these things were talked about more uh, bravely, I, I, I again, I'm a little disappointed in the DPP considering that it comes from um, the origins of a totalitarian state which saw plenty of arbitrary imprisonment and executions. This should be a group of people that uh, is fighting for uh, human rights, which one of them is, uh, in my view, uh, not to be executed. But uh, yes, Brian is right. The pan blue and the opposition will use this. And unfortunately, it's all too possible that the government will decide to kill someone to uh, allay those uh, criticisms. Yeah, that's right. And I think particularly now the response, for example, from public was to call for police officers to be allowed to use firearms more easily. And so you have this kind of legalistic approach then that, for example, increasing level of violence or capacity to use violence from the state is what will remedy the issue of violent crimes. I think also what is a matter of concern to me is that the killer in this case was uh, at a jail that was minimum security because it was focused on rehabilitative approaches, allowing, for example, prisoners to participate in factory or farm work and to visit their families and to uh, see more visits from members of the public. But then, for example, those approaches that are aimed at reintegrating prisoners into society will perhaps then be criticized with the view that there should be harsher measures instead taken. 
And before we go this week, members of the public and political figures have been paying tribute to Britain's Queen Elizabeth this week here in Taipei. Now, the British office here in Taiwan opened a book of condolence for people to mourn the Queen's death. Now, a handful of people, including Taiwanese nationals, Hong Kong natives and British nationals, chose to brave the pouring rain on Tuesday in Taipei to wait for the representative office to open to members of the public. Now, while the office took to Twitter on Thursday to say it was extending the opening time with a book of condolence and it was asking people to bear in mind that the queue to sign might extend outside of the building with longer waiting time to pay your respects. Now, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu signed the book on Thursday with the Foreign Ministry posting a photograph of him signing the book under the watchful gaze of the UK's top envoy here in Taiwan. While KMT Chairman Eric Jew also signed the book this week with the KMT also taking to Twitter to post a photograph of Jew seated at a table in front of the book of condolences. So, Michael, I mean, you've been out on the street talking to the every man, every woman. What are they saying about the Queen's death in Kaohsiung? Yeah, uh, you asked me to ask a few people, so I did so. And the reaction uh, has pretty much been the same reaction that my wife had. So the day before the Queen's death, uh, the palace had put out uh, an announcement that she was under medical observation and stuff. And for those of us who are aware of how the system works, we pretty much knew that what that meant was that they were preparing us for an eminent death. You know, the people were rushing to her bedside and all of that. So the next morning when I told my wife that uh, the Queen had passed on, she was like slightly surprised and said, oh, I, I liked her, uh, but very quickly recovered and then said, well, she, she was 96 and she led a good life. And that seems to be the general consensus of the people that I've talked to is that she was liked, but uh, I don't think they have a particular connection with uh, the Queen in the sense of like uh, the people of Hong Kong would. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that her death is then seen as representing the end of an era. I mean, she did live for close to a century and saw many historical events. Uh, I think also particularly because of a lot of uh, pop culture, for example, the crown and so forth, there people are aware of the history of the UK through such a lens. And so I think there's maybe a little more knowledge, I guess, among uh, particularly younger people of the Queen, but it's still quite distant. It's not There's not a direct connection in the way of uh, Hong Kong and the UK, for example. But of course, Brian, there was a connection because, of course, the Chi Mei Museum in Tainan's gift shop, apparently it's sold out of its tote bags with the Queen's head on. Yeah, that's right. I'm also amused that there is a holographic exhibit of the Queen that was for her Platinum Jubilee that happened to be ongoing in Taiwan. And that also became a hit, I think, after the death. And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Yu. Good night. And by Michael Smith in Kaohsiung. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.